Welcome to the Chuck and Deb Show, heard each Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on 1490 AM WWPR. And now, here's Chuck and Deb. Hi, I'm Chuck. And Deb. And And welcome welcome to Biker Biker Life with with Chuck Chuck and Deb. Hey, we are so truly grateful and thankful that you joined us today. We have a fantastic show lined up just Just for for you. you. So you'll want to be sure to stay tuned. Deb, take it away. Biker Life is for those who are inspired to ride and those who inspire others to ride. We are here to reveal the truth behind the motorcycle mystique and provide real-life stories that will help you discover your purpose, achieve true freedom, and define your destiny. And today's sponsors are Tony and Guy Hairdressing Academy out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So if you are ready to crank up your engines, put your chins to the wind, and knees in the breeze. Let's do it. And this is going to be a very special show today. It will be commercial free. So we hope you enjoy. All right. So we are all revved up here today because we have a very eclectic biker and author. Dutch Van Alston is joining us. We will be cranking it up into high gear as we get to know him and dive into his latest release, Demons Rising, the story of the Wayward Scout. So Dutch has been riding since childhood. He grew up in the biker subculture as a member and citizen, and we will dive into that here in a few minutes. Dutch grew up in upstate New York and now lives in the St. Petersburg area in Florida and remains active in the biker community today. So we want to welcome Dutch, and we are so glad that you have joined us in our unique version of a fire side chat with the demons rising there you the go. story of the wayward scout so welcome dutch we're so glad to have you thank you yeah, by the way that little fireside chat i've got to hand that to deb that was her little twist for you there dutch i love that the bonfire scenes are some of my favorite in the book <laughs> Absolutely. A, yeah, absolutely and i didn't want to give that away but we are definitely doing our little fireside chat today yeah so let's go ahead and dig right into it deb are you starting off and well, I guess the first question we want have for you, Dutch, is at what age did you first start to know motorcycles would be part of your life? Well, from the age of reason, which is about five or six, I can remember <laughs> okay. my father having a motorcycle and my older brother had one. And when I was nine, back in 19, well, we'll just say nine. Let's, yeah. <laughs> many, many years ago, my there father pulled into the driveway and in the back was this little mini bike. And I I knew it was for me. I didn't know who else it could be for. And I I remember running out to the driveway. And I remember my mother tripping up on her words saying, he can't ride that. He should be at least nine years old. I think she (laughs) meant to say he should be at least 10 or nine is too young. And I still Uh heard my father's face saying, he is nine. (laughs) Pulled it off the back. And it's, it's been like the only love affair that I've ever had that has been a consistent through all the changes of time. So it's for you know that it's right when that I love know affairs that's, right. that's yeah, for sure it's, it's yeah been with me forever that's great so do you recall this? the first time you started writing and what really attracted you to writing i mean what's really funny is uh, i think we even talked to jim and jim had a mini bike experience and i had a mini bike experience mm-hmm. and that's where you know my love for biking started i remember the smells of the mini bike the the feeling the exhilaration all that from the mini bike but uh go ahead uh dutch tell us what was uh what was it that you know attracted you to the riding and how maybe even that mini bike had a part to do with it. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna steal the whole part about the smell. I remember the smell of it very well. It's back when yeah. regular gas was still put into the bike. <laughs> exactly. You still smell that, and I, and the sound of it. I still remember like one time on that little mini bike, the drive shield came off and the rotor was sticking out, and all I had to do was catch my jeans in it and rip it up and pull me off. And I remember my father saying. Well, just don't stick your leg that close to it. <laughs> and, I, and I just remember feeling almost like a semblance of safety on that motorcycle. That it was just, I felt indestructible as I was riding, no matter where I went. And that was back in the day with before the helicopter parenting, where you could just kind of just say goodbye and you could be gone for three, four hours and off on the trails you went. Right. It was just such a great experience. I didn't, I didn't need anybody around. I didn't need to be told how to do it, when to do it, why to do it, and how to feel about it. It just all came naturally. Probably the same experience a lot of people have had. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can I can relate to that totally, just getting out there and just like you said, those were different days. You know, you were able to get out there and just do things a little bit different than they are today. Uh, but uh, you know, as you as you started to to grow into it, you obviously had a mini bike that got you started. Where did it go from there? Oh, motocross. We we're a big motocross family back in the seventies. Hey. My brother raced and I raced. I raced Oh, I think from age 10, right up to my late teens, I remember running the circuit, Avoca, New York, Dansville, New York, uh, Unadilla, all those places. Those are some of the best memories too. Even just going to the motocross races because to lay in the back of the pickup because there's no room for me in the front. I used to lay in the, between the motorcycles and I can still remember the, the wind blowing the blanket off me and the gas <laughs> can't be next to me and signing up for the races and the, and the, you know, the practice runs and rain falling on you. And the smell of the gas, and you got a clean rear filter before you go. Check your tires, and oh, it was a great feeling. Like it, was out there. it was like yeah. a giant party all day. <laughs> That's great. Twelve dollars to race each day, and then back in 1977, that was a lot of money. That was expensive. a lot of money. I really appreciated the fact that my parents put that money out there for mm-hmm. for nothing more than what it was. It was a hobby. I wasn't ever going to be a professional motocross racer at that time, but raced for a lot of years. I really loved it. That's cool. That's so fun. Eat a lot of dirt. (laughs) Gotta love the dirt, right? Yeah. (laughs) Now we kind of dove in very quickly into biking, but you, as I mentioned, you're a very eclectic being and you've got a lot behind you that a lot of people don't know. So I'd like to actually take a step back and let our listeners and those watching have a chance to get to know Dutch in a different way before we really get too deep into the motorcycling and the book and everything. So, you know, would you share a little bit about who you are, where you came from, things about you that I think everyone wants to know? Oh, dear. (laughs) Not my my best. (laughs) Spent a lot of time alone, a lot of time alone as a kid. Um, I, it, it wasn't that I was uh, like a loner in the traditional sense, but I liked being alone. I liked being out on the motorcycle. I liked being in the neighborhood alone. I would always join in on a basketball game or baseball game or anything like that. But most of the time, I spent a lot of time by myself, and it gave me a lot of time to to just kind of – I was a very, like you said, eclectic kid. Even at that <laughs> early age when it wasn't, dare I use the word, normal to be – 10, 11, 12 years old to kind of be this contemplative thinker. I used to listen to song lyrics when I was 11 years old and write them down and dissect them and rewrite them and all that kind of stuff. Probably why I didn't have a lot of friends because 11, 12 year old boys don't think that way normally. They just want to go out and raise hell and look at girls. And I liked all that part too, but that's what I started writing. Actually, my, my parents used to have the soul Smith and Corona. And I used to go downstairs and just bang out on those keys, all these little short stories about my very first short story is about a moose who was a detective. I was only like nine or 10 at the time. And I just always used to 
right all the way through junior high and high school and it, it was like the only class I thrived in in school was English class and my parents used to look at my stuff and read it and think oh did you really say all this did you really think all this or did somebody help you <laughs> no I'm afraid that's straight from my brain so <laughs> it's always been a part of who I am it just it's never kind of developed into formalization of writing a book Okay. Until so now. you, yeah, you definitely talked a little bit about your writing history, but you're also, you, you've had a lot of education in your background too. And that just amazed me because most people, you know, when you think of author, I would think about that, but I think a biker and I wouldn't think about that. So I have a master's from SUNY New York. And I don't talk a lot about that because like you said, you, you don't see about a guy with tattoos and, you know, I just had an earring at the time and a bandana and you look over and you think, what do you do for a living? Because I'm actually a substance abuse clinician, oddly enough, as, as I said. Education has always interested me. I mean, the, the thirst for knowledge has always interested me. I'm one of those people who hear a word and I think I got to go look up. What does it mean? And it's always been a passion of mine. I've always been reading. I've always been watching things on TV. I got a very interest in everything I don't know anything about, I want to read about and just develop that brain. My brain has always been like that. I just, I got to know something. Constant and, learning, yeah. so... Constant learning. With the age of the internet, it's a little bit easier, doesn't it? I'm sorry. With the age of the internet, it makes it a little bit easier, too. It has. It has. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I just ask Alexa. Now, the, in the other day, I didn't know a word. I just asked Alexa. I didn't even have to move from the couch. She explained <laughs> exactly. it to me. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of that myself. I had to do that uh, through your book a little bit as well. Yeah. And that's one of the criticisms I got, that I use too many big words. And I thought, I don't, I don't mean to sound... <laughs> like some erudite that I'm trying to impress people. Hey, look at this giant word. That's just the words that I know how to explain things. But. Right. Well, Solomon, he didn't appreciate that much either. <laughs> no, he did not appreciate a whole lot. No, he did not at all. He was, and you're right, in a couple of those spots, he made fun of Digger using those big words. Solomon yeah, yeah. was very a very grounded man who knew exactly where he was and what he wanted to do. And he was trying to kind of groom the main character, Digger, into being more like him which is either good or bad because Solomon had a lot of faults and a lot of demons inside of him. No pun intended. Yes, right. indeed. Let's just keep going. Let's keep rolling with that. Actually, I was thinking that that might be, we've kind of talked about some really great openings and beginnings of the book. And if Dutch is open to that, you know, I think now might be a great time to kind of begin the book with, um, I believe it's page six. Oh, if okay works. Oh, I, I just think that's a great place to kind of set the tone from, especially kind of moving into the book. So. Sure. I mean, we're, we're going to be all over the place here and that's going to be okay. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to put my old man glasses on. So I'm going to transform right. into this devilishly handsome young man into a man <laughs> who says, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there we go. Okay. This is in chapter two and this is starts out with the main character, Digger Garcia riding his motorcycle. And this is kind of what's going through his mind at the time. And he's trying to explain to the reader what it's like to ride. And it's not just a matter of getting on a bike and popping the clutch and putting it to first and going down the road. Feeds into is he's already talking about some things that are make him sound a little bit cynical about life. But then he says, if the cynicism is showing through, then I'm getting my point across incredibly early. I think these things. I think these things a lot when I'm out on the road. The mystique of the open road has been praised in poems, limericks, and inspirational blurb. But the facts are, unless you are where I am right now, you will have a harder time understanding it. The passion that a winding, unexploited road with miles of ghosts before me brings to me is not explainable. Some attend church in a building. My church is here. 
behind my handlebars with the, with my soul free to think, feel, see, believe, and to solve. God created this beauty, and it's an insult to him to forego it. Man's natural state is freedom. Those who willingly give that up are those who won't sing a song from the sound of the rubber on the road. I know you've heard it all before, but the words are true. The riot of freedom is truly in one's soul, but only if you've been behind the chrome bars looking at the dotted yellow lines through the eyes of a warrior. It is only those who can genuinely appreciate the spirit of the road, roads that internet maps barely know because nobody of substance rides these roads. But alone on these roads means something different. Whether it's special or not is debatable, but it is, for certain, a tranquil feeling. I mean, the hardest person to get to know is yourself. So the more time you get to spend knowing yourself, you get to know the real you, the better relationship you'll have. I wake up to familiar faces, but also strangers, new sounds, smells, and sights. But regardless of those differences, I am always there. I need to know what I think and why. The therapy of the two-lane highway can open up old wounds, but also help heal them, giving a sense of optimism over the horizon. As I ride and ride, the road continues. It doesn't end. The asphalt never disappoints me. It can be smooth, straight, and unencumbered, but I'm guaranteed a patch of curves, potholes, and then every biker's nightmare, gravel. But the dotted lines keep zooming past me, and the pavement goes on and on. The sense of knowing the road will, once again, be smooth and open, keeps my spirit alive and the sense of adventure from reverting to the cynicism of the world that sucks me in once I put the kickstand down. Mm-hmm. I am my own best man, and I am my own worst enemy. I am every man. Thank you. That, Absolutely that, that does love set it. The Thanks for, for sharing sure. that. You did a great job reading that. Thank and you. Writing it, in fact. Um, like I was uh, mentioning to you earlier, it's just how I feel, but there's no way I can express it the way you did. <laughs> and uh, when I read that, it was just, it, that's what drew me into the book. It's like, okay, now we're talking the same talk, right? <laughs> so it was like, okay, we're getting to here somewhere here. And as we got into the book, it was really interesting because you do suck people in right quick. Because <laughs> things don't happen that. Right back, you know? So you never really know that until somebody reads it. What's that? I said, you never really know that as a writer until somebody reads it and tells you that. So thank you. You know, yes. You're welcome. And, you know, what's going to be hard about this interview is I don't want people to know a lot about the book. I don't want to reveal a lot about the book. Right. Uh, so really what's difficult for us, because we want you to get the book. OK, you've got to read this book right. to really totally understand the book, to really totally enjoy the book and immerse yourself in the book, because, you just got to do it. Okay. So we don't want to give it away. It's, it's sort of like, you don't want to give away the, the ending, ending to a movie. movie right. True. So we were, we're going to try not to give away a lot of what is in Dutch's book because we want to encourage our listeners, our viewers to go out and pick up Dutch's book because we truly believe in it. Deb ate the oh, book. Up. Gosh, I mean, yeah. she got a hold of it first. We started out reading it together. Uh, I had to go in the hospital for a while. So we sat in the hospital reading it. I had to go through what I went through and she took the book and she went with plowed through it. Couldn't stop. It took me a little time to get to the book, but once I started the book over a weekend when we had a lot of rain here, I, was, I didn't want to set it down. And I think it's going to be the same for anybody that picks up Dutch's book. Uh, you're not going to want to set it down. I remember I had to just take a little break uh, to close my eyes, but it wasn't long because I wanted to get back to the book. <laughs> all right. Because it was one step after another, and you really wanted to know what was going to take place next. Yeah. So, you know, I, 
Again, it's going to be a tough interview because okay. we're not really, you know, try to reveal too much of a Dutch's book. All right. Yeah. Well, Dutch might give it away himself because he likes it. All right. Well, in, in maybe your own unique way. Yeah. I'd rather you give it away than us. That's for sure. Thank you again for reading that because I really, the placement of that chapter really set the tone. Whether you're a writer or not, you know, I think people that haven't written want that feeling want that mystique want that experience but they don't know how to go about getting it and writers i'm so you know if you've done any kind of writing you know and can relate and just want more of it because i know i can't get enough on the bike so um thank you for taking the time to read that and kind of set the tone for how we kind of dive into the book from here we're gonna just gonna go right at it here absolutely you know the first step is um you talked a lot about writing as a young person so what really drove you and motivated you to write this full-length book because that has got to be an endeavor of itself to write a book that big and I'm not saying that to scare anyone but it's a story novel I'm not quite sure the right word for it but you know share with us a little bit about what drove you what motivated you to do that well it's always kind of been in the back of my mind for years I mean to be honest this book if you really want to say what the genesis was it was probably 20 years ago and I would just kind of think of ideas and characters. Actually, the Digger the digger character comes from a made-up friend of mine when I was nine years old. So, I mean, just, <laughs> oddly enough, yeah. So, for, yeah, that is odd, by the way. It was a question I had you answered early. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Pointing, I'll let you know. <laughs> that was a made-up friend that I used to talk to when I was 10 years old. Hello. Okay. <laughs> the last 20 years, it would just kind of go through my mind about what it would be like to write about a club and I was in a club back in since the eighties. And when I ride, especially all these kind of thoughts and ideas come to my head. And nowadays I can actually stop the bike and send myself a text message, send myself an email when I get a little idea back then it was a little more difficult to do. So it was hard to kind of formulate all these things, but for the last 20 years, I've been kind of formulating this in my head and around last probably August of 18, or 17, I don't even know, 18. I just sat down and decided just to put pen to paper, metaphorically speaking, because it's actually fingers to keyboard, mm-hmm. and just bang it out. And it flowed very nicely. It probably took me six months from the first time I, I started hitting the keys to the final stroke of the keyboard. Amazing. To give you an exact answer of how and why, I can't. It just kind of, I, I had no plot in mind whatsoever. I just hmm. started and everything just kind of, I went to this, to this, to this, to this, and 35 chapters and done. Well, then you have a natural talent. Absolutely right. Because it just all came together. <laughs> and whether you, you wanted together. it to or not, it came together. That's for sure. And, and we will, will mention right here that, that you're planning on this to be a series. Is that correct? I am. I am. I've already kind of started on book two, but it's going to be, it's the uh, uh, Life Behind Bars book series. It's a very cliche life behind bars, but I stole it anyway because it's very fitting um, right. because it is a whole different life behind the handlebars and in, in, in the whole motorcycle club uh, atmosphere is totally different. It's like a little mini subculture of life. It's a microcosm of life. It's kind of a self-created family life that you make up. Not, I shouldn't say make up, but you search for because the one thing I like about this book is a lot of people write about, you know, the who, the what the where, the how, and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think anybody's really tackled the whole why. And when people say, well, why do people get into motorcycle clubs? The, the canned answer is always, well, the search for brotherhood. Yes, kind of, sort of, maybe. 
but it's a bigger answer than that. It's kind of because women are searching for that too. Women search for that substitute family that they didn't get growing up. And, and one thing I like about the book is, is, as I know you notice, is each chapter, except for the first one and the epilogue, have a little background, a paragraph long about each character and what they went through growing up. And it gives you a little indication of, hey, that family that you were like preordained to be born in isn't always the best. Hmm. So as you grow up, you're searching for that new one. And this is a perfect life to adopt a new family. Absolutely. Would you allow me to be able to quote something out of your book? Absolutely. Knock yourself out. It's actually at the beginning of the book. And it says, you'll shed blood for your family, but you don't need blood to be family. Would that relate to a little bit about what you're saying and maybe sort of the essence of the book in a way? That is the essence of the book. In fact, the original cover had that quote on there. Mm-hmm. That's a problem with marketing and metadata saying that any words you put on the cover, when it, it was a complicated process and you couldn't okay. put words on the cover. They would so, show up in the search engines. So I had to take it off there. But that is absolutely the essence of the book that too many people put too much emphasis on your blood family, which mm-hmm. is kind of an insult to people who adopt children and foster children and things like that. So it is basically what it's saying is you will do anything for your family. You'll shed blood for your family, but you don't have to have DNA lineage to be family. Right. In this, and, and unfortunately, we put way too much emphasis on DNA. And, well, that's your sister. That's your father. That you, you should not feel that way about them. Right. My philosophy has always been your family is really those who love and support you and take care of you, not those you're related to. Interesting. That's a good approach. And, you know, actually, life lessons have kind of taught us some of the same things is that, you know, family is what we make them and are drawn to people in our lives, not necessarily those that we're born born into. So I can I can see that for sure. So thank you for letting us share that. Yeah, that, that can be uh, quite deep. And that's why I'm sort of, you know, stuck here a little bit because I get in my head a little bit too. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the book carries that through. So, you know, and, and that's what I saw. And that's when you were talking about some of the, the what do you call them, the prelogs to each chapter? Is that what, how you put it? Yeah, just a little, the little, yeah, about every character, not every character in the book, but every main character in the book has a kind of a different chapter in the beginning showing what they went through in their family life. As you've seen, you know, mm-hmm. there's abuse, there's sexual abuse, physical abuse, there's neglect, there's poverty, there's mental illness, you know, kind of. And so so that became something in a book that was a, um, how would you say, it? not a trend, but a pattern that all the characters sort of had is, is that, 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 that child, um, ex- childhood experiences mm-hmm. that actually, I don't know if I want to say this, but made them who they were. Yeah, that, that, no, that's a very uh, good analogy. Right. Yeah. And, and I purposely wrote every person had a different negative experience. Hmm. But some, and, and all around the country, you know, the character of Venus is from Nebraska. The character from Digger was from Indiana. Uh, the, the two brothers, Walt and Willie, were from all over the West Coast. But somehow, yet, yeah, they found each other. And that, right. even, though they, even though they didn't know each other as children, they all kind of experienced the same thing. And and I think I wrote in there somewhere about when you when you like, lonely lonely people will eventually find each other and start new, and that's what these people did. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And these characters in the book were they based on uh, people that you know or people that you have known? Um, 
Not directly, no. I mean, they're all fictional characters. Because, I, you know, I see... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. There's people who have influenced each character. Okay, Solomon, okay. Solomon is influenced by a, a guy I knew. He's in one of the people that I dedicated the book to. Oh, that's that's what I was going to ask. Uh, okay. Because I noticed that you dedicated the book to four people. Yes. And, uh, so were the characters... Go ahead, you were about to say that. not really based on them, but they did influence some. Like the bonfire scenes really were Kenny Hotelling, one of the guys that dedicated the book to. Him and I many times sat out by a bonfire and had some very nice talks. Mm. He's really nothing like the character of Solomon, but that influenced me to write that from that perspective. The character of Mallet that that, uh, is based, not based, I'm sorry, (laughs) (laughs) by another friend of mine. But nobody, it's not based on anybody. Everybody's fictional. Because I've heard that before, people saying, "So you must be the character of Digger." I mean, no, 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 no. It's all fictional. Oh no! no. no. <laughs> I, I beg to differ. <laughs> I mean, you wrote it, but I'm, I'm going to keep you know the way I feel about it. I was going to be have a question. I was going to have a question oh, for you. I still probably ask it. So while we're here, um, what about names? You picked Solomon, Venus, and, and, and you know the other names made sense. Pantag, Pantag, Dave, stuff like that. Yeah. Mallet was an interesting one. What about Solomon? What did Solomon have a his name? Did it have a particular meeting? Did the name Venus have a particular meeting? Did Digger's name have a particular meeting? Any well, any of that? Solomon actually, his original name was going to be Yoda for a while. Okay, kind of that wise character and you know in charge of everybody. But believe it or not, this is kind of a technical answer. I researched that George Lucas has some very interesting copyright laws that he somehow managed to formulate. Oh. And I just was not about to navigate through them. Sure. So I thought, let's go back to the old biblical days of Solomon, the old brutal king, wise and in charge. And I thought that was probably even a better name for him anyway, because that's what Solomon was supposed to be. He was supposed to be the guy who's been around a long time and kind of detached, a bit brutal, but very mm-hmm. wise and always seemed to have the answer. Didn't always display the right answer the right way, but... <laughs> Always seemed to have the right answer. He was very particular, wasn't it, Solomon? He was very particular. And that <laughs> yeah. character kind of took off on because originally when I was starting to write it, he was going to be the more wise, calm character. And somewhere it just kind of flipped around chapter six or seven. He just became kind of this crazed, very irrational person, irrational. And it yeah. just worked better. No, I just say sometimes those characters kind of what you have planned for them, they just kind of take off on their own. and. It just flowed better after I made him kind of the more volatile, I don't want to say violent, but. No, no, he violent. didn't get volatile. Uh, you know, the uh, the people won't you know this, but the scene when the clubhouse, uh, when it got really intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And uh, that, uh, you know, made you wonder. And, you know, as I was reading, you know, you didn't address that. And I know a lot of our listeners don't know what we're talking about. Which is but great. you go on through the book and it's never addressed. <laughs> it's left. Okay, but then later, right. the, it all comes out. And, and, right. and, and in the back of your mind, it's like you, you sort of know it's there. And you're like wondering what's whatever happened with yeah, this. What happened? You know, it's like an unfinished business, mm-hmm. but you do finish it. You do get I to do it. I finish that. And, and I hope I did that the right way because oh, yeah. it was, that fabulous. was supposed yeah. to, and without giving a lot away, like you said, that was supposed to kind of humanize Solomon at the end. It did. When all, when all came, because all Solomon cared about was the club. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a likable character for the most part, but if you really read into it, he kind of abandoned his family. He kind of did his own thing. The club was all that was important to him. That's yep. all he wanted to kind of carry on. 
Yes, absolutely. So he thought that was going to have to be from an iron fist. But as you read on, you see he kind of took on this human component of he really did care and love about all his brothers in the club. Absolutely. And while we're on that, because I had a question formulated with that in the book, uh, and I say you slash digger, I'm going to stay with that, by the way. <laughs> He's young and handsome. That's uh... oh, come on now. <laughs> so are you. Uh, it, digger gives a speech about uh, Solomon. And in it, he reveals uh, what people never knew about him. And uh, Solomon had a mystique about him that others just didn't know. In real life, we all have like preconceived ideas and misconceptions about people. Have you ever had people see you in a certain way that maybe um, have been, I guess, uh, so to speak, uh, reading a book by its cover? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start with it. <laughs> that should be an answer that should just flow out, but there's just so many different examples. I mean, sure. I mean, absolutely. People see the tattoos and the bandana and the Harley and they, you know, just they terrible misconceptions about it. Sometimes I don't even like to tell people that, yeah, I have a master's degree. Yes, mm -hmm. I am. I, I do this for a living. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a disappointment to people. It really is. They just they <laughs> think about what you're supposed to be. And then when they talk with you for a while, they, I've had a lot of people say, you know, you're a lot nicer than you come across. And I was like, I don't know what that means exactly. Well, when I saw you, I, I looked like, you know, you're going to be mean. And I think, well, what what looks mean about me? Well, you shave right. your head and you got the long mustache and the tattoos. And and yeah, that's that's a preconceived notion. I think probably all of us do. Yeah, I've, I've had that my whole life. I just, I, and I think that's one of the themes I try to touch on is that people yes. misread things. They judge, a, no pun intended, but a, a book on its cover. Exactly. Right. With the whole character of Solomon, he put up this facade, not facade, because he was a tough old man. Right. But he did not want people to know anything about his more human side. Right. Exactly. And his he, human and, side. And he, even Digger was probably his closest friend. And even he didn't tell him a lot of this stuff. Right. You know, That's right. Because Digger had to do his own investigation. Right. Exactly. I mean, one of my favorite chapters is chapter five, which is the first really long bonfire scene. And I titled it The Moment. Because Digger's kind of looking for this moment of emotional bonding with Solomon. Yeah. Solomon disappoints him greatly by basically saying, I don't care what I did in the, in the Vietnam War. I don't care who I killed, who I, it doesn't matter to me. Right. Digger's very disappointed. So that was already kind of a preconceived notion that, you know, Digger had about him. Sure. And, and like you said, he had to kind of investigate it on his own. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've, I've, I'm sure all of us have faced that our whole life. And, and I rode back in the days when, Kind of hate saying that because it makes me sound so old, but <laughs> when when Harleys were pretty rare, if you were at a red light with a Harley Davidson, people would be looking out the window and pointing at you. Oh my God, look at that. Well, that's a Harley <laughs> Davidson. Holy cow. Nobody has those. You know, stay away from that guy. And I'm just I'm just a harmless little fuzzball. <laughs> <laughs> but little do they know. Yeah. Little do they know, yes. <laughs> and and you know, that's really interesting because you know, and and, and I think it's just normal. I think uh, people uh you know, maybe judge other people uh, without number. They do the, read the uh, book by its cover. Mm -hmm. And then when they get to know other people, they find out, wow, it's a lot different. You know, you, like you said, with a master's degree, you know, you should mm -hmm. be proud of that. Uh, Absolutely. I think, I think what's interesting and, and, you know, when you think about it, it's like you say, there's a, there's that mystique again. It's like, really? This guy's a biker and he has a master's, master's degree. degree. What, what, what's wrong with that? Exactly. Yeah. There's people from all walks of life. 
uh, that that have that that are bikers. So absolutely. Um, so I think it's just a part of life, and I think you've built that in the book real well as well. Also, so the way that you did that with Solomon, I loved it. Yeah, it brought up the human in him. Yeah. When I lived in Rochester, there was a, a very dominant one percent club there who invited us all to their fortieth anniversary. And I was going to bring this then my then girlfriend at the time who was like in a mild panic. We're going to go in their clubhouse. You know, she thought she was going to be like, you know, raped and robbed. And, you know, what she found was, you know, pulled pork and biscuits and smiling and laughing. And she was just amazed that, oh, these guys didn't try to kill me. It's like, no, of course they didn't try to kill you. (laughs) You This this is not what people do. This is what you're reading on and the news and on TV and the sensationalism of it all. And right. So you were in a club. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Okay. For how many years? Uh, two different clubs for about 22 years until I moved down here. Wow. Mm-hmm. What, what, uh, what attracted you to get involved with the clubs and what, uh, what kept you there? Well, that, the very same theme that I try to write about and that, that whole search for, and I don't want to say I had a bad family life. I had a good, I had a good father. I had, but it was still kind of this really, dysfunctional type family where I never really felt like I belong, never really felt like I fit in. And that, like I said earlier about how I always spent a lot of time alone and all that, that could have been more intrinsic in me. I don't know. I don't want to blame it on my upbringing, but I've always searched for that bond of, I mean, I joined the military for the same reason. I just wanted to join and have you know, a band of brothers as it were. And it just yeah. it never seemed to work out, but in the motorcycle world, it worked out. I mean, in the club life, you might not even like one another, but when push comes to shove, I know they were there for me. And that sure. always made me feel good that, you know, these, we used to always say, you don't have to like me, but I do love the guy. I hate the guy, but I love the guy. <laughs> that is really interesting. That leads to another question. And it's, you know, our questions aren't flowing like we thought we never knew they would. So, you know, it's interesting. You said you might not like one another. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I have was how important was acceptance within the club? And that's probably what drew me mostly because this is kind of hard to explain, even for a guy who like wrote a whole book on it, but we're all different. But once you kind of put that patch on, you are all the same as far as that goes. And and you all do accept each other with all your little flaws. I mean, person might have a different relationship with his old lady. This person might have a different type of job. This person might think a little differently, but when all is said and done, at the end of the day, we all accept each other and we stay true to each other. And that's what kind of keeps, I mean, the club I was in when I left in Rochester, it started in 1970 and they're still there. They're, they're going to be celebrating 50 years next year. There's nobody left from the original days. So that whole theme, that whole foundation that was built of acceptance, brotherhood, love for one another has carried on all those years. And that's, where it's at today. I mean, that's, that's very important. Acceptance is very important. I, I would agree. And um, I'm glad you shared that. Thank you so much. And, and the only reason I, I guess I sort of asked that, uh, not only what, what did I feel it within the book, but I've experienced that myself. And I've always found that with, when you're within a group and people just accept everybody as who they are, it's really harmonious. Right. Um, and everybody's different, you know, you, and you, like you say, you're not going to always like everybody for whatever, but you're, you're, you're band together, you're, you're bound together. And it just really 
makes a good mix. It's when people, and I, just, I don't know how I want to say that, and I don't, this is your interview, but um, it's, it's when, we, when we, we don't accept, when we start the judging, when we start that thing, that's when it loses its bond. In oh, my absolutely. Opinion. Absolutely. But they start having little clicks within the club and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's the thing about club life today, unfortunately, that there's a lot of clubs that I like to call pop-up, not that I call them, but everybody calls them pop-up clubs that people just kind of throw a patch on their back and there's no real substance behind it. And if I can give you a quick anecdote, when I was still living in Rochester, we were out with a couple of other clubs at a bar. We were just kind of mingling and talking. And this one young guy just got out of the army and I give him a lot of credit, walked up to another guy in the club and just said, I was really thinking about joining a club. What, what, what's it about? What it's like? And, and um, this guy in the other club was explaining it very eloquently, telling him what's expected. And it's a lot of work. You prospect for a year and you got to do this. And the kid said, wow, yeah. You know, I might just join one of those military clubs. And there was no real, I, I didn't begrudge him anything, but it was just kind of that whole, I really don't want to do the work. I really right. don't want to have the philosophy of, you know, acceptance and brotherhood and bonding. I just want a patch on my back. Right. right. And that's, and that's really what's missing nowadays. So some of these older clubs that have been around a long time, that is a theme that they've built up on and, and, and are still running with. All right. Deb, I've been taking over. you got some questions. Don't let me just run the show. <laughs> that's okay. Um, it's been a great dialogue, and we've learned a lot about the club life, and which is cool because that's what we really wanted to dig a lot into because we don't know that side of life. But, you know, I know the book is fiction, and you mentioned that many of the characters just kind of evolved from experiences in life. However, the question is, do any of the words really draw from real life experiences? Because it almost sounds like some of it does. Well, there's, there's two that are more humorous that are almost word for word. There's a, a part in the book where they all go out to dinner and they come into the restaurant and the hostess says to them, as she takes one look at them and basically wants nothing to do with it and then puts them in a back room that isn't even open. And that actually came from back in the eighties uh, the club I was in, we were coming back from our sister chapter, which is just like north of Pittsburgh, and it was pouring rain, and everybody was in a bad mood. We we actually drank the night before, shockingly, but <laughs> we're all feeling <laughs> we're all feeling really bad in the morning, and compound that, like I said, with rain and cold, and we stopped at this diner and we came to the door, and I still remember the look on the hostess's face. She kind of looked to. We had a character named, not a character, I'm sorry, a real guy named Josh Randall, who was six foot six, former Marine, had this stentorian boom to his voice. We need a table for 18. And she said, we can't see 18 people. And he said, we're really hungry. And she said, she looked at the host and said, open up the banquet room. She said, it's not open. She goes, it is now. <laughs> and <laughs> back there. But then in the book, I wrote almost exactly that, just because that was always a humorous part. Absolutely. Sure. But you're humorous in the book as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the only other humorous part, and this is actually drawn from almost word from word, is a friend in, in the in the in the book, the character Mallet gets hit by a truck going out to get his mail, and he's all banged up. And he's on his way to the ER. And Digger calls him and he's all panicking. And I'll take you to the ER. He's going, Oh, I'll be fine. My old lady's gonna take me. And then the next morning he calls and he says, Well, how'd you make out at the yard? ER? He said, Well, I, I was going to go, but my neighbor came over with a bottle of whiskey and the bonfire, and I went there instead. And that is absolutely 100% true. That is a friend of mine who got hit a little different, but he was on his motorcycle pulling into his drive, and a pickup truck hit him. 
head over heels into the back of the pickup and his neck's off, elbows broken, he's bleeding and he's yelling into the phone and he's screaming, I'm going to kill this guy and all this. I said, just go to the ER. He goes, Tammy's taking me right now. I said, okay, well, just call me when you get back. He never called me. And the next morning he calls and he tells me he's on his way. And I said, what happened? You were going last night. Oh, oh, that. Yeah. The neighbor came over with a bottle of whiskey and a bonfire, someone over there. And I just started laughing and he didn't even catch on. But he didn't know what was so funny. I said, let's see, you're all banged up. You could have had a broken neck. You're bleeding. You put a piece of duct tape on your head just because somebody brought a bottle of Jim Beam over. Yeah. <laughs> Priorities, and, right? Oh, yeah. To this day, when I still laugh about that. But he didn't you even love that, actually. Oh, that really? was just, that's my favorite story to tell people. It was just, it was just hilarious. It just, I mean, that really? guy just. The way it was written in the book was too. Uh, yeah. You're like, it's really? almost good? word for word, that's almost for word. And I, I worked really hard to kind of work that into the book. I just wanted to. It really I, didn't, it didn't I, matter, I, I, subtract anything to the book or the story, but no. I just wanted to put that in there for my own personal anecdote. Yep. I totally agree. And I'm glad you worked it in because it did kind of go, what the heck, man? All right. So I get it. (laughs) Well, I just wanted to, from your perspective, what's the difference between a 1% club and a regular club? And that's a hard, for for one thing, a 1% club is not what the government and the media says, which is, you know, they're all criminals and they're trafficking math. And that's just not true. That's just part of the agenda that they have to kind of create that image. Uh, and I don't even want to get into all that, but that's, that's just, that's a fact. But the real difference is a 1% club is just very intense in what they do. I mean, it started from a little story in Hollister, California, where a bunch of people on motorcycles got a little rowdy one night and somebody used that term about all oh, these bikers created a riot in Hollister. And somebody from the AMA said, well, just so you know, the AMA, the American Motorcycle Association, just so you know, 99% of the people are good people. It's just those 1% that are lousy. Right. And a lot of those people took that moniker as a badge of honor and said, fine, we'll take that. We'll be that 1% that say, but really what it is, is just kind of Venus, the character Venus tries to explain it in chapter three and does so very badly. But she made a good point, which is basically most clubs are what they call a, a family job club which is your family comes first, then your job, and then your club. A 1% club, it really is your entire life wrapped into one. It comes over your job. It really comes over your family. It is just that level of intensity. Mm. And it's just that is what's kept them going for 50, 60, 70 years. And the reason why they're 1% is because most people can't keep up that level of commitment. That's all. It has nothing to do with sure. you know, enterprise. And I mean, I don't care what the DEA says or BATF says, and, but it doesn't diminish clubs that are not 1%. They're very hardcore. They're very rigorous, but they're just not at that level of we're all on board. Right. There's Come a level in. of dedication, I think. Right. Loyalty. Yeah. I mean, I know one club where anytime there's a funeral, every member nationally has to go to that funeral. It doesn't mm. matter whether it's in Germany. It doesn't matter whether it's in Alaska. You're going to be there. Right. I mean, so it's just it's just that level of commitment that it's just hard for everybody to do. Yep. yep. Very good. So uh, since we're right there, let me ask you this, because this was a question uh, that I believe some people might even be wondering about. Uh, 
And I hate to go there, but we're going to go. So, uh, you know, the shows like the Sons of Anarchy and the, you know, the current Mayan show, did that reflect, do you believe, uh, the accuracy of an MC, or is that just all Hollywood? I thought it was gratuitously violent. I mean, there's some, there's some violence for sure, but uh, no, I don't think it fully reflected it. But okay. I mean, Kurt Sutter had his target audience. He knew what he was right. doing, very successful in what he does. But no, I don't think it reflected it as it really is. However, I don't think that was his goal anyway. I think his goal was to strictly entertain people. Entertaining. Yes. Yeah. And they, and they really, and, and some of the script and some of the dialogue, they just quote unquote tried too hard. And hmm. I, I think a lot of things, they just like looked up on Wikipedia, some of the verbiage and the wording and just hmm. kind of tried to stick it in there as best they could. It's, it would be hard to do on film. It really would be. And, and so no, I'd say no, as a general rule, no, I don't think it's a, an accurate portrayal of it. I think okay. they were really looking for a lot of sensationalism, and most of the time it's not. Yeah, and again, it's just Hollywood, right? It's entertainment. Right. And you've got to sell, you know? Gotta yeah, have absolutely. Average- yeah, I don't begrudge him that at all. He's a very talented man who's absolutely. done a lot. Yeah. yeah. For sure. So how were you introduced to motorcycle clubs as your first experience? Well, there was a club in Corning called The Chosen Few back in the 70s. And even as a kid, I used to see them. I didn't quite know who they were. But in the mid-80s, I'd ran into a guy who was a member of the Chosen Few who left that club and started another club. And I just got to talking with him, and he invited me to the clubhouse a couple times. And it just, that's kind of what I was looking for. I just didn't even know what I was, I didn't even know I was looking for it, but I had found it. It was just the camaraderie and the whole, a lot of laughter, a lot of fun. And it's just what everybody talks about what they want. And there it was. No, I just had to kind of earn my way there. I mean, I, I had to prospect for the club. That was a that was a lot of fun. It was very interesting. One of the one of the this is back before the days of cell phones and things like that. But one of the outings we went to when I was prospecting, I had to have a flashlight around my neck so I could be spotted everywhere. So if anybody needed me, you couldn't <laughs> hide. You better have that flashlight on. <laughs> but I oh, I look back and it was a lot of fun. It set everybody's tent. They had to run and get beer, and it was just the prospecting is. The worst thing you want to go through, but yeah. the minute it's over, it's you almost miss it. You almost look back at it as a as a rite of passage that you really truly appreciate. That's interesting you say that because as I look at that and I read through the book and I'm saying to myself, man, I just don't think I could have been a prospect. I, I guess my ego or something mm-hmm. would get away. Uh, and some more power to you. I'm not. I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can help me there. I don't know. If, well, it's funny because, and you're right, because you are kind of, I mean, the, the, the club I prospect before didn't purposely belittle you, and some right. clubs do, which is just, I think, wrong. Prospecting process is supposed to be almost like an apprenticeship of teaching you the way things work. But that yes, you are also the the lackey. You're also the guy who stays when the bar, or when the, we don't have a bar in the clubhouse, sorry. <laughs> um, we don't do that but yeah i mean you're the one who kind of cleans up afterwards and if you get a phone call saying hey i'm gonna go out tonight i need you're gonna go escort that that member all night you're gonna follow him around make sure he's all right and follow him to the men's room make sure nobody comes at him and things like that but once you're patched in it's really over it's not it's not a matter of you know that you are now one of the brothers so <laughs> if you were a prospect an hour ago you're not anymore and you're treated just like everybody else so it's, hey, it, you earned your way. 
you earned your way. Absolutely. It, it, it's wasn't handed to you. It wasn't handed to you. It, 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 and I know what you mean by it's kind of, it's not really humiliating, but it really is kind of a way of, like you said, earning your way. If you can look at it from that perspective, that it's not me personally, they really are trying to teach me something in their own way. Right. right. Because you have to submit. You do. You know, a lot of things in life we have to submit to. You do. And it does weed people so out. I've seen a lot of prospects. Basically, they had a system, and you submitted to their system. Absolutely. Right. And it, it does weed people out. I've seen a lot of prospects who didn't make it. A lot absolutely. The filter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, absolutely. I've seen a lot of people six months come in and say, I don't want to do this, yeah. turn their stuff in. I've seen people after six months say, give us your stuff, because you ain't you ain't making it. You're not material. Not yeah. Too cool. Cool. Thanks for covering that. Now, in the book, I read that you've been – in and out of clubhouses as a member and civilian. And as someone that's not as familiar with the club concept, I that word civilian kind of cut me off guard. So how, you know, I think, you know, just the clubs that we pass in everyday riding up in Daytona and things, we were talking about it earlier today. I'm like, I couldn't ride up to the club and say, you know, let's go have a beer together. That just wasn't fly. So, you know, help me understand what that concept of a civilian part of the club and things like that we're like, well, I mean, even down because I'm not in a club anymore when I came down here, but I'm still, there's a local club in Sarasota. I go to their open house all the time. I mean, I just, you just meet people and you just walk up and kind of shake their hand. And I mean, I used to be in a club for a lot of years. So I, that was kind of how my introduction started. And, and there's even a different level of, because one time I was at that clubhouse, somebody came to the door and they said to him, who are you? And he said, well, I met one of your members at Leesburg. He invited me to come down. He said, you got a card? And he gave him his card. He said, yeah, this is this is the member that invited me. He said, okay, you can come on in. So huh. it does take, I mean, it's not like you can just go up to the door and say, hi, I heard there's an open house here. I just want to come in and have a beer. Right. Yeah, that's what oh, kind really? of threw me for a loop. I'm like, I don't get it. First, give me your phone and then lift your shirt up. Make sure you don't have a gun on you. And who are you? <laughs> so it's not yeah. quite, but yeah, I mean, civilians, there's, there's people who are just friends of the club. And that's okay. really what I am at this level. I don't. I'll, I'll never join another club again, just because I just don't have the time or energy to do it. Right. Uh, yeah. It's. It's still. It's still. I love being there. I love being in the clubhouse, and you know, it's. It's a good experience either way. Well, that helps me a lot because, like I said, you know, I just I was intrigued by that. I'm like, how do you just go be a civilian at the club? And yeah, you, you know, know, there's an invitation, so it sounds pretty formal question. and a process. Yeah, absolutely. Go. So good to know. How authentic is the story uh, to real life? you know, the motorcycle club in your book? Well, and that's some of the criticism I've had. I've had people read it who will write back to me and say, you know, that's not, you know, this part here, like there's a part where Solomon doesn't know the prospect's name. And in the book, and just from a literary standpoint, in the book, I didn't want the prospect to even have a name. It was because he just didn't have a name. His name was what he was, which was prospect. In real Mm -hmm. life, you know damn well what his name is and where he lives and you know everything about him or he wouldn't even put that bottom rock around him to begin with. But I tried to be as authentic as I could be and still have literary license in it. I mean, so it's, it's authentic as far as how things work, but there's anecdotal examples of, no, that would never happen. And that's one example that would never happen where you don't know the prospect's name. Of course you're going to know his name. Sure. Yeah. But that, that's been the only thing. And I always got to remind people, it's a novel. It's fiction. It's a novel. That's right. So it's a fiction that, story. I'll, I'll accept any criticism except that. I don't want to hear that. You know, these little examples of, well, that's not right. Well, it's not a biography. It's not a how-to book. Right. 
There you go. That's That's a great way to put it for sure. So what was difficult about writing likable, sympathetic characters into the book when, you know, is that really part of the real drama of a club and things like that? That is hard to do because you want them and you want the reader to like them and be somewhat sympathetic, but they're not choir boys. They're not, you can't make everybody out to be this good, wonderful person when that's why I include, there's a scene in there where a couple of you have asked me, why did you write the scene about them going to the Harley dealership and running into that guy who mouthed off? I said, yeah. I wanted to remind the reader <laughs> that they are still who they are. And if you lip off to somebody, you better expect to you know, meet some sort of consequence that says we are who we are and we're nice guys until you poke at us. And if you yeah. poke at us, this is what's going to happen. So that was difficult. I, I, I really, there's some parts I've taken out of the book and I added the book because it made them sound too nice and then it made them sound too <laughs> bad. But when people read a book, traditionally they want good characters to win out in the end. Mm-hmm. And that's right. difficult to do when you're dealing with people who are maybe good people, but are not in an environment that society sees as the Boy Scouts. No, right. They are, they do, they use drugs, they, you know, they fight, they do, they do things you shouldn't do. And to make that a sympathetic character, that was difficult. I, I hope I pulled that off because I, that was. I can imagine. And as a female writer myself, that was something that I, you know, I, I kind of, I tried to connect with the women characters and then I couldn't, and then I did. And then I, you know, so I was pulled and that's what kind of kept me in intrigued in the book is because there were all those different emotions going on. So I think you did a great job. You really did um, on a lot of different levels. Like you say, even with the women and it was very complex, actually. (laughs) The women were difficult because you could see the character of Babs was very appreciated by Mm. her old man, Top Hat. Uh, Digger clearly loved Venus to the point where uh, it almost ruined him. But, but that was difficult because it, it, it's it's not a hierarchy where the women are equal, good, bad, or indifferent. It's not a judgment call. It's just the way it is. But it doesn't mean that they were looked down upon or mistreated. Babs right. was talking about the time where they wear the property of Patch. And she tried to explain to Venus that this is to protect us. And that is actually another, uh, I should have included this with the whole anecdote of true story. But back in the 80s, when I was dating somebody, she had a property of Patch. And we were out at a bar one night and she got a little forceful and some guy sat next to her. She hip checked him right out of the booth and onto the floor he went. And he got up and he was about ready to go off on him. And they stood up and they turned around and they had the little property up patch. And I still remember the one guy saying, leave him be. And that really was what it boiled down to is it was there to protect them. They were, they were ready to, I don't know what they were ready to do, but as soon as they saw that, that patch, they thought, no, leave him be. And a lot of women take that as a subservient role, but it really wasn't. Right. And you clarified that in the book, I thought. I hope so. I thought you did. That's still a sticky point to this day. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sort of going back just a little bit, you mentioned the uh, dealer uh, scenario in the book. So let's take for life uh, a real example. If uh, if somebody was to uh, run into somebody that's part of an MC, is there anything they should know? Any particular way they should be behaved? Any kind of disrespect is, is usually intent. You know, something you do out of ignorance is not going to be considered. I mean, if you're walking through the shop and you bump into somebody and you say, oh, sorry, 
right, it's yeah. not going to be a problem. But if you just kind of go in and just kind of elbow somebody, you're going to have a problem. Right. If you say something about, you know, their girlfriend or their motorcycle, and it, it, it really is all about what is your intent? Are you trying to be disrespectful? Or are you basically saying, I can say and do whatever I want, and you guys are nobody? Or are you hmm. saying something that maybe you just need to be schooled on that you shouldn't do or say? Right. Uh, Deb, what do you got? Well, would you, I guess we've already kind of talked about this, but I would imagine that you're going to agree that there are some misconceptions about bikers in general, which, you know, I think was a lot of what you tried to do regarding the mystique of bikers. So um, anything come to mind, a specific story maybe that you've experienced or that the club experienced that wasn't truly accurate out there in the real world? From my perspective personally, or mm-hmm. I mean, we used to get that a lot from from anybody. I mean, any any place we walked in, we would have, you know, people would. And, and, in, the, and in the beginning, Digger kind of admits that he likes to keep people. I think his exact words were, "I don't want to scare people, but I like them to be on guard." I like yes. that. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's you. We'd be lying if we said some of the perks involved. He he was there was one scene where he was running back from the woods, running back to the van. And he says, one thing about being at a club is, you know, you have girls throwing yourself at you. There's never a cover charge and all that kind of stuff. But he says, but really what it comes down to is, you know, I, I know where I'm going to find Solomon and he's going to be right exactly where I want him to be. And I think some people misread that whole club concept of that is really what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And even though those perks are kind of nice where, people buy you drinks and they leave you alone and they kind of, that's really not what the goal is. But a lot of people, when they see you out, think automatically you're trying to intimidate. And we had people come, we've had bouncers come up as soon as you walk in and say, we don't want any trouble tonight. And there's no trouble to be had. We just want a drink. We want to come in and eat. And that's all there was. Right. And, and that's just, and they're being very polite, but that was like their main concern. Oh no, a motorcycle club came in here. Especially if you were out of town and you weren't familiar with that city and you walked into a, a bar a hundred miles away, mm. a lot of panic. You know, what are you doing? Other clubs, if you go into a bar where there's another club, a lot of patrons will panic. Oh, there's already another club here. You guys are here to cause trouble. No, we happen to be friends with right. them. They're just in a different club. This is not what you see on TV. This is not, you know, the you know, club A warring with club B. Right. Yeah, those, those are great examples. Yeah. A little bit more about you real quick. Uh, you mentioned you were in the military. What branch? The army. Okay. Well, thank you for your service. Reagan years, peacetime. (laughs) right. And do you have any children, Dutch? I do. I do. I got a 33-year-old who lives in uh, North Carolina, and I got a 31-year-old who's still up there in Rochester, New York. He's getting married in September, as a matter of fact. Okay. Flying back up there and wishing him well. Nice. All right. Well, that'll be coming up real soon. Yeah. Good deal. Yeah, that is. But no grandchildren, nothing like that. And congratulations to you. I see you got a fresh one, so... Oh man! Oh gosh! That'd be a great <laughs> feeling, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's totally different. Yeah. So you don't have a grandchild yet? Not yet, but I have a feeling the one that's getting married is probably going to give me a grandchild within the year. He's always, always, always wanted kids, but he's just been hasn't met the right one. So this is the right one. It's the one. That's yeah. cool. Well, yeah. good luck with that, and you'll you'll see what I'm feeling. It's uh, it's oh, it's it's. Uh, I told Deb the other day, uh, I, I'm in love all over again. 
Oh, I bet. I saw, I saw the picture of Deb with that smile on her face. That's why I wrote the kind of mildly sarcastic comment that I did that. It looks like you guys kind of like this little kitty. Yeah, kind of. Oh, man, I'm telling you. It's, uh, it's, it's really strange for me, I'll tell you that. Well, thank you very much. I think we talked about that when we asked that well, question early on. Go ahead, Deb. I'm curious. You mentioned in the book that bikers go to certain places where bikers can be bikers. So in this, and it was kind of cool to read about places that we know local, you know, that names that are like, oh, wait, and I know that person. So that's kind of a cool thing. So where would bikers go be bikers in the real world for you? Well, that's in the acknowledgments, I think. I mentioned um, a friend of mine, Jesse Mullen, who owns, well, he owned the Tip Top Tavern, which was there since the 40s. That recently closed, but he has another bar. But those two atmospheres were perfect. It was just where you could go and be exactly who you were, and nobody was ever going to bother you. And Mm -hmm. if anybody was, he used to to have a sign on the wall that said, we don't call 911. And I know everybody does that as a joke, (laughs) but this is an absolutely true story. Back when he owned both bars, he was at the Reinhardt Saloon, and somebody came rolling in really fast and said, Jesse, there's smoke coming out of the tip top. And he said, what do I do? Do I call 911? And he said, absolutely not. You don't call 911. We don't want anybody over there. And he got on his <laughs> bike and rode over it. It just turned out to be something in the kitchen. But it was just that whole atmosphere where you could just, I think you used the word early on about acceptance. And it just didn't matter what you were riding, what you were wearing, what you were saying, what you were doing. You were just, it was like the biker version of Cheers. You were just welcome as soon as you came in. And there are a lot of places that came yeah. to that clientele and, and do so enthusiastically. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. That's really cool the way you put it, too. Yeah, it, it, it's at the bar. You just went there. Because that's, that was the question that I had. I was actually not going to ask it. And I'm actually glad that you did, Deb. So, because he answered it real well. Because uh, I wanted to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, bikers good deal. just being bikers. All right. Um, let's see. What's next, Deb? Keep rolling here. Well, is there any difference between what you would consider a biker and a motorcyclist? Because those terms, you know, are thrown out there all the time in the world. But Yeah, they are. And, and maybe sometimes unfairly because there's nothing wrong with being a motorcyclist at all. The whole motorcycle culture has kind of grown. Again, I know I'm an old man, but when I was a kid, really nobody had a motorcycle. It was it wasn't it wasn't I shouldn't say nobody, but it was not. They weren't populated like they are on the highway. To be a biker is just more of a way of life. It's a more of a, a subculture of life, even if you're not in a club. And somebody, and I'll give him credit for it, said basically what it boils down to is you don't really care what anybody else does and you don't really care what anybody else thinks. And that is really what it comes down to. There's nothing wrong with, some people don't embrace that whole lifestyle. They just like the motorcycle and like to ride and God bless them. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But to be a biker, at least in my opinion, is more of a way of life defined as it's my way of life. This is what I do. And it carries on through your work, through your family and all that kind of stuff, how you live in your neighborhood. It's just a way of living. And you just happen to have a motorcycle to fit that way you live. But Fantastic. (laughs) That was great. I love it. Yeah. Oh, you Thank did. You, I, I didn't know. How, I didn't know how I was going to put that. But that's the best way. I yeah. Know. Well, it came out it perfect. Came I mean, out. Yeah. I, if only I could have your words. <laughs> if only. Well, little Jack Daniels, and you can have him. There you go. I can only <laughs> maybe, hope for maybe that. not. All right, I got one for you. So, I um, does the word brother have a different meaning to you than maybe it does other people? For example. I think earlier I actually said to you, you know, okay, brother or something. And yeah. I do it 
as a, you know, a casual speaking when I might talk to somebody. So does the word brother have a different meaning to you? And would I be able to call you brother? Yeah. And, 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 and I'm going to probably be on the, on an outlier on this because a lot of people in this whole, and I don't know why this is one thing I've never quite figured out get really offended by that. Oh, don't bro me unless you know me. I think it's, it's, it's like a polite greeting. It's innocuous. It's, it's, I don't understand what's wrong with that. I really don't. I mean, a lot of people do. You know, hey, I and I'm very careful about that. If I'm if I'm out and I see somebody in a in a, a respectable club, I don't call them brother. I don't. Right. You know, and and but when somebody calls me that, I, what am I going to be offended by that? Don't call me brother. Yeah. I mean, what, that means that means that means hello. That means friendship. That means gratitude. That means welcome. I don't understand why people get offended by that, but a lot of people do. They do. I, That's I'm, 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 on the, I'm kind of the outlier on that. I don't understand why people get upset about that. Yeah, because um, and I didn't finish my question totally because the last part of it um, that I had written down here or, or, you know, in order to be able to call you brother, is that something that has to be earned? It does in a club life. And, and in fact, okay. somewhere in the book where it says where they finally patch somebody in, he says, you may now call me brother. There you go. As far as in club life. Yeah. The prospect better not call one of the members brothers. That's okay. totally different. Right. And in that setting, yeah, that is very, very special and unique. And and somewhere in the book they were talking about, Digger says to Solomon, why don't we let the prospect come out in the fire with us and, and relax with us? And Solomon says, no, he's a prospect. He can't. He hasn't earned that yet. And he says, and Solomon made a lot of sense. He said, don't take that honor away from him because eventually he'll have that and then he'll appreciate it. Yes. But as far as like in civilian life, and I, I don't say anything wrong. It's just... Like you say, friendly salutation. Friendly, you know. I just yep. and I think people who get upset by it are kind of like showboating and probably virtue signaling and you know, yeah. probably read a book somewhere that said this is what they're supposed to be angry at. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really don't. I really don't give it any thought. And it's really weird sometimes. I even when I use the word brother, I'm like, why didn't I just say that? You know. <laughs> but it's it just sort I of a it, yeah. thing that comes about. Yeah. No, I welcome that. I don't understand. I don't understand why people get upset by it. Yeah. yeah. All right. You know, this is a question uh, that you've already answered, but I have to ask it because I said I was going to. Are you able to reveal if the character Digger in the book is in some way or another you? <laughs> it really isn't. I mean, a lot I'm of it, holding to that. <laughs> a lot of his personal philosophy, probably. I mean, a lot of anything you write about comes within. I mean, I can't I can't make up what I'm thinking and feeling. And that's what you do when you write is you write what you're thinking and feeling and you attribute it to another character. Sure. But I mean, yeah. as far as he's, he's a proud Marine and war veteran and all this kind of stuff. I'm none of those things whatsoever. <laughs> but as far well, as. I like, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I like it because I think you summed it up for me in, in a way, the philosophy. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's me. I mean, that's my word. That's what I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. And his right kind of whole search for, a different life. Yeah. I mean, that, that certainly comes from within. Absolutely. So if you're listening and you're wondering all about this digger character, well, then what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get the book and you know, you've got this interview to be able to go back to with Dutch uh, to be able to see and relate some of these things in the book and figure out your own version uh, of Digger and who you believe Digger is. So mm-hmm. what you want to do is pick up his book. Okay. Absolutely. What you got right. next, Deb? So were you ever a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout? I was probably, I think I was a Cub Scout at one time. For you? Okay. Okay. Well, I got a question for you then. Mm-hmm. Sure. Do you remember the uh, Boy Scout oath? Uh, honor, loyalty, morally straight, something or other. I really something like that. <laughs> something like that. 
<laughs> yeah. I, uh, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country to oh, be square. The law of the pack. That was the Cub Scout oath. Yeah, oh, Cub Scout, Cub not Boy Scout. Scout. Yeah, the Boy Scout right. had a different one. So I remember that one. Then. Yeah, because I was actually a Cub Scout leader at one time for my kids, but <laughs> either one of them went into the Boy exactly. Scout. <laughs> so that was the Cub Scout. Yeah, Cub Scout. I, I, oh, that's, that's been in me for years. Um, when we lived up north in Florida, uh, I was a Boy Scout, and then we got transferred overseas to Germany. And so I was never, never able to continue um, with the Boy Scouts. But I remember being so proud. I mean, I wore my uniform to school every day. There you go. I loved it. Anyway, that. talk about me, but yeah, I know even in the title of the book, it talks about the story of a wayward scout. Now the scout mm-hmm. could be interpreted in different ways, but right. and that's it, and that and I like and I like that because you really don't hear anything about the scouts except for the first chapter and the epilogue. Okay. And it's yep. just more of an introduction, the very first chapter, and that's why it doesn't have a background blurb, is okay. because it's already a background blurb. It's Digger when he was 15 years old and he's getting his Eagle Scout character, and it gives you a little insight into his father who's more of a status climber socially than he is really as being proud of his son. Yeah. And Digger's kind of over there with his hands folded and he doesn't really, he doesn't really see this as a big event because his father isn't even letting him make a big event. But I right. did that purposely where I wanted to start the book at a scout meeting. And then the epilogue takes place at a scout meeting again. It's just yeah. supposed to show the difference between how he was as a kid and how he was as, you know, as, as a parent. So later in life, yeah. right. Later in life, I should have gone with later in life. You're right. <laughs> yeah, later in life, and, and actually, you know, I spent a lot of time on that. Um, even after the f- book, after I read it, I went back and reviewed those the other morning, and I was like trying to compare it to because I had to get it right in my mind. And then at the shift at the end, reader, uh, you guys are gonna have to go at the book to understand, but you need to read the book. Yes. Um, and, and see what Dutch is talking about, but it, but it all does come together, and it's interesting how you tie the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then it comes to the end. It's it's just really cool. Yeah, I, just really like I it. thought it was a great connection. Absolutely, man. Yep. All right. So loyalty, in your opinion, is it getting harder and harder to, to come by these days? Real one, yeah, absolutely. People know what the definition is according to Webster, but yeah, absolutely. It's it's becoming more and more artificial. It's becoming more and more. Yeah, I'm very loyal, but you know that little three letter word of but after that. Yeah. In my, at least in my opinion, true loyalty is you do, you stand by somebody and you support them no matter what, not just when it's convenient, not just when it's, you know, the heat, the heat gets too hot for you. And that's kind of, I don't want to say gone by the wayside, but it's kind of disappeared over the years. We've become a very self-serving world and everything is about me and, you know, everybody else gets kind of left to the wolves and hey, I got your back at least for a little while until it's no longer benefits me. Makes right. a good bumper sticker, but it's really hard to apply it to real life. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering how you felt about that because it does does seem like, uh, and and that's a lot of what's in your book too. Uh, this yeah, is about loyalty. It is. It's less and it is getting less and less. And I think, and I know I do repeat that theme a lot, and that's intentional because that is what every scene, every single character was looking for from childhood on up. And this is why when they all kind of found each other. It's all defined differently for them. I mean, for the for the women and the different members, loyalty means something different. But they feel accepted. They feel that they're giving and receiving loyalty in their own way. That's really what it boils down to. Right. And it just works, that's for sure. So I see that the Demons Rising, the story of the wayward scout, is 
part of a series. Um, in the second book, do, first of all, how many books do you, are you anticipating at this point being in that series, if you have any idea? I, I don't have a, I mean, my brain is kind of going full speed. So, and, and really what okay. I'm going to do as far as a series is I'm going to pick a different club, different characters, but I'm going to tie the club. I mean, in book two, Demons Rising is going to be in it, but it's going to be focused more on a new club. Okay. And I think that way you can kind of go gangbusters, really. I mean, you don't have to keep sure. developing and changing characters. I like the, the Demons Rising characters the way they are. So if you come mm-hmm. up with a book two, you got to change something. You got to develop something. Right. I don't really want to do that. I like them the way they they ended up. I I totally agree. And you mentioned in the book you actually talked a little bit about each character in the e- in the beginning of each chapter. Are you going to keep that concept moving forward in the future books? Because yeah. it was very an interesting ray of writing. Yeah, I, and that was actually a, a last minute idea. I was going to do it just for one chapter. I was going to do it for the chapter number two. It's kind of an introduction. And mm-hmm. I thought well, this kind of works. You know, I want to. Yeah. My whole theme is about comparing what they grew up with to what they were looking for to what they have now. I should let the reader know. And what better way to do that other than a paragraph in the beginning? It's the only part of the book that's written in past tense. The whole book is written first person, present tense, which is difficult to do sometimes. But those little flashback scenes, I I think they carry a lot of weight and let the reader know. Because like like the character of Venus, so far, the feedback I'm getting on her is nobody really likes her. Mm. And and it surprised me because I I thought I wrote her as a more kind of sympathetic person. She's a bit emotionally distant and things like that. But when you read some of the background blurbs, mm-hmm. you know, why wouldn't she be? Well, and, and for Venus, for me, I, the verdict's still out because of the way the book ended. It actually threw yeah. a wrench in it for me going, okay, was there something there that I should have picked up on that maybe I didn't? And I saw it, but to that extreme was a little, I don't know. So my verdict's still out. So I agree with that. And I think also for a reader, that history, even though it may not have been identical, there are pieces of all of us that are planted in all of their histories that I could go, wow, I remember feeling that as a child or, you know, I had this one experience when that happened to me too. And that's why I want this now in my adult life kind of a thing. So it, I think it connected us to the characters in ways that I didn't expect it to. So, oh, wow. Yeah. That's a great compliment. Cool. It, it was cool. So, That's a really like, good compliment. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. Keep on going, Deb. Well, <laughs> do yeah, you're on a roll, Deb. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so do you anticipate the following books in the series to follow that same flashback format, which is what I said? And what drew you to write the book kind of in that style? Now, you mentioned that it was supposed to be one chapter, but how did it really grow to be more of the book? The, the chapter or the paragraphs in the beginning? Yes. Because I, I just thought it just helped explain, instead of trying to hide it in dialogue and cloak it in dialogue about, you know, what each person went through. Why not just say it directly? People okay. can absorb that at face value about, you know, what this person would like. Like we said at the beginning, there's all sorts of abuse. There's all sorts of, there's pot, there's mental, there's a lot of mental health in Solomon's life, as you can tell. Yep. And it just, it's, it's easier. I don't want to say easier, but I think it's just more direct and it's just better on the reader to read exactly what, happened instead of trying to hide it in subliminal messages. Great. Yeah. Cause there's, better. there's a lot of depth to it anyway, without trying to figure all that out. So. <laughs> and, so and some of those background paragraphs were more like, there's one about Babs explaining who she was. Uh-huh. She was like 20 or something. And the one friend is talking about, Oh, you can't go on like this forever. And 
but it explained what her character was like from the beginning. And she was a very self-assured, confident person. And so not all of it was negative, but it, all of it explained what they were before they found each other. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Now I, I got a little something that really rubbing me wrong here. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. You, you included the uh, general manager of Rossiter Holly Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do that. I had to do that. No, I had to do that because he, always, he was man. always picks on me about being over by the beer tap. I had, include, I had to include that part about there where they were looking for Digger, and he said, "Oh, he's not over by the keg." So I don't worry. Yeah, exactly. Every uh, time I see Scott, that's what he says. Oh, what are you doing here, Dutch? The keg's over that way. Very good. Very good. That's funny. I thought it was cool. Yep. So there's so much unwritten in the book as I go back and we reread and talk and discover new aha moments. Is there anything underlying underlying for you as a message that you want the reader to get that, you know, maybe you would want to share with them kind of ahead of the game? Yeah. Um, mostly, if it helps people understand, because too many people have a misconception of why you join a club, and it is because, oh, you just want to look cool, you just want to be a badass, you just want to pick up girls, you just want to scare people. And that really isn't why people are drawn. I mean, there's too many people who are drawn to it for that negative reason. For the most part, the reason why you're drawn to it is to create your own family that you didn't have, that you wanted growing up. You know, lost, I think I wrote lost, lonely people will find their own way. They'll create their own world when the world that they're in disappoints them. So I'm trying to maybe normalize that a little bit, make people understand a little bit that, you know, just because that's the path people go down, it doesn't doesn't minimize who they are. You know, you may look like a criminal, but you're not a criminal. They may look like a, a badass, but you might have four stray dogs at your house. Because- <laughs> <laughs> We're not mentioning any names. Yeah. <laughs> sure we can. <laughs> Have you had a rec- received any feedback, good or bad, uh, from your book? I've had, I've had a little both. I, I, I spoke earlier about some, the negative feedback, if I'm getting any, is about the authenticity. Right. And that, I mean, I'll take any kind of negative feedback if, if, if it's constructive. But when people talk about, oh, I got the way it's supposed to be, it's like, that's not even a constructive feedback. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not a, it's not a biography. I, you know, they, go read a biography if that's what you want. You know, I, I try to make it as authentic as I could. But uh, yeah, some positive feedback. I got an interesting one the other day, and I put it on my Facebook page. There was a guy who bought it just because he was being gracious, and I'm a good customer. And he said he's never read a book in his life. He's like in his mid-30s. Uh, he didn't do well in school and never, he said, the longest thing he ever read in his life was a text message. He goes, but honest to God, I opened up your book and he goes, I'm more than halfway through it. He goes, I absolutely love it. He goes, there's parts of it that give me goosebumps. He seemed almost shocked that that was his reaction. That, that meant a lot to me. You know, if you can encourage somebody to read, no yeah. matter what it is, and, and appreciate writing, I, that's, I mean, that's all I want. <laughs> Yeah, that's a huge compliment, in fact, and I can see how that would make, you know, uh, have a lot of meaning to you and really appreciate that. Yeah, that meant a lot to me because I just, it just shot, I mean, I didn't know what to say to him. I'm not good. I'm not good at receiving compliments anyway. And when he said that, I said, I don't even know what to say. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, so I, mean, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Other than that, like you said, thank you. I mean, yeah, right. absolutely. So will you be doing any book signings in the local area uh, that people can come out and get a chance to meet you, get your book, have you sign it, all that fun stuff? The very first one I'm going to do is Rossiter's is having their 29th anniversary, I believe, September 14th. And uh, I'm going to set up there, bring my book, have hopefully a lot of fun, sell some books, meet people. I would love to love to meet a lot of people. 
Wonderful. So there you have it. Uh, do we have that date by any chance? I think it's yeah, September fourteenth. September fourteenth. Yep. Nine until nine to nine to four, something like that. Yep. yep. We'll be there as well. We're planning on being there, so maybe we can hook up when we get oh, you there. Too? Oh, great! We're going to try that to be, be there great. as well. We've got it planned. And we've got a book, so that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be well, that'd wonderful. Be great. Yeah, I'd like to see you again. Absolutely. So, and if those that want to get the book prior to September fourteenth, how could they go out and find your book and buy it and get started on reading it? Well, there's two ways. You could actually order it through uh, lulu.com directly, L-U-L-U.com. Okay. But I also have my own website, which is just dutchvanalstenet.com. Okay. Um, the be- <laughs> as of right now, as we're speaking, uh, the payment method isn't working. So if somebody wants to buy the book, they could just email me directly as well, which is just dutchvanalsten at gmail.com until I get that fixed. But okay. I welcome anybody to visit the website and sign up for the newsletter and say hello and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then what I'll try to do, Dutch, as well, is uh, we'll put up a link on the Chuck and Deb show, uh, dot com, and it'll be uh, Chuck and Deb show dot com forward slash Dutch. All or right. I could do humans rising, I but I think little name there. Yep. And then that way uh, that you'll have a link to get back to Dutch as well. Uh, we'll maybe even at that time put up some links where you can purchase it uh, from the site. So oh, we'll plan on that in the future. Oh, yeah. Anything we can do. That's right. We're about going to wrap things up here. But before we do, would you have any feedback or anything you'd like to share uh, to any would-be authors out there? Oh, well, this is going to sound kind of canned and superficial, but just the guy we were just talking about who said he loved, you know, he never read anything in his life. Uh, and I don't want to mention his names. I don't want to embarrass him because, but he confessed to me that he used to write children's books and this the character that they had, he said, but I just, I don't do it anymore. He said, I'm dyslexic and I don't know how to do it. And, and the only advice I give somebody like that is just sit down and do it. Right. Get in front of the keyboard, do it, do some freestyle writing to clear your head, which is pretty much just sitting in front of the keys and typing anything, any words, they don't have to make any kind of sense or anything and just kind of get your brain in that mode. But my philosophy is if, if I can do it, anybody can. It just <laughs> takes some time, dedication, attendance, and it goes in spurts. Um, there's nights where I can write for three straight hours. There's nights where I just kind of sit there at the keyboard and sit bourbon because I, nothing comes out. <laughs> any ideas that you have in your head, Text yourself, email yourself, write them down, and, and go home and formulate them on pages. But that would be my best advice is just write. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> really appreciate that. Now, Dutch, I know this is uh, an interview uh, with you, but I'm going to veer over and just ask Deb a question. Oh, no. Uh, Deb, reading the book, you know, you're going to have some women. And Dutch, you've had some uh, women buy your book, haven't you? Yeah. Okay, good. And so, Deb, from a women's perspective, how, what would you tell the women out there about Dutch's book? And how would you know? Just tell me. Well, that thanks for putting me on the spot. Yeah, You're I great like doing at that. that. Oh, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> I can count on that. But I, I I couldn't put it down. I you know, as we mentioned early on, the women thing. You know, in today's society, it was a little difficult. But I think what connected me to the women and even the men was knowing a little bit about their history, because I think that drew me into their humanism, as mm-hmm. we mentioned, and really being real people beyond the club. And so, whether you ride or connected with the club, you know that loyalty, that connection. Because I think as adults, we all long for that, whether you're male or female. And you know, the book did a great job of putting all that in perspective. And 
then I loved the rides too. So as a writer, it just like hit every facet of my emotions that I could imagine. And I'd say women, you're missing out if you're not picking the book up and, and making a goal of it. So because it was an amazing book. I loved it. And, and Deb is an avid reader. She's always reading every night. I'm not somebody that always reads every night, but Deb is always picking up some type of novel and reading it. And for Deb to get into this book and to love it the way that she did, uh, that speaks volumes for what you've done, Dutch. So congratulations on the book. It's outstanding. Thank you. Yeah. And real quick here, um, and maybe I should have said that this at the beginning. I wanted to give a description of what happened to me as I was um, reading the book. And I explained this to Deb. It was like... Um, that weekend I read the book, it was like, I was almost paranoid Dutch. And it's almost paranoid feeling. It was this feeling that I was witnessing something that I wasn't supposed to be part of. Ooh, I like that. I'd be afraid <laughs> that somebody knew that I was being the observer of this event. Does that make sense at all? I love that definition. That means you were, it, it, it kind of have an inside look at something you weren't supposed to. Exactly. Right. It was like I was having this view that I wasn't supposed to know. I wasn't supposed to be there. I wasn't supposed to see all this stuff that was going on, but I did. And the whole idea was, what if somebody found out? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, I, I'm glad I could do that because this is a perspective. It's not like you can just. You know, order it online and have this experience. I mean, it's one of those places that are just closed off to most of the world. And if I brought that out to you, then that's great. That's yeah, it was really cool, creepy but cool. <laughs> I like that though. That's that's an awesome. I thought it would. I wish I took compliments better. Yeah. You know, it's just like an inside scoop. You know, it's like a, a view from the inside. And the only way you're going to know what I'm talking about, guys, listeners, you viewers, get is to go and, and get, get the it. book. No, it's that right. plain and simple. So we're going to wrap things up. And as we wrap things up, uh, Dutch, what I'd like you to do is you just take it away here, brother. You, brother. <laughs> you just you go, take it. <laughs> I accept it with, with grace. So. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Go ahead and take it away. Let everybody let everybody know anything that you'd like to have them that maybe we didn't cover and wrap it up for us. Well, I, I don't know what you didn't cover. I mean, that was that was a great interview. This You guys really know what you're doing on that end. I, I, you do. That, it, appreciate that. I'm going to ask you a quick question. Is when did Uh-oh. you guys start doing this? Because you guys are naturals at this. The whole flow well, and the back and forth and... Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. We started this in April, March, 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 March April. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> that's so <laughs> really? Almost 30 years of marriage, I guess, does <laughs> is we just feed off of each other, you know? But not in this format. And that's no. no. What made you? It is new. But it is reverse okay. society. But what, what, what started this? I mean, you guys just wake up and say, hey, let's start a radio show. We just have a passion for it. We have a passion for the motorcycle mystique that is that is uh, described in your book. And we believe that we need to get the word out that, you know, we're just not what the people think that we are, that they view us a certain way. And we want to share the motorcycle lifestyle with people because we're very passionate about it. And we actually want to encourage people to get on a bike and ride. Yeah. Deb, as you probably know or may not know, she is a coach, a rider coach with Harley Davidson. And so her passion, she has a heart for it. So that's what we want to do. We want to get more people involved. We want to expose people to all the good things that the motorcycle and bikers do for the community because mm-hmm. there's a great number of things 
things that people just don't know. And we're just learning as we go, Dutch. And each and every day I stumble across something new that we didn't know existed. And, 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 and in relations to you, I feel like we're babies. Okay. Baby bikers. All right. You've been around, you've been riding, you know, a long time. Uh, and so you've, you've got a little bit more years and experience on us, but that's not stopping us. We're starting where we are and we're just going out there and sharing our passion with people. Yeah. You don't have any formal training in media or anything like that? <laughs> no, sir. No. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm, I'm, I hope that's not disappointing. We don't have a bachelor's degree or anything. So. <laughs> hey, hey. For a loop because you guys are naturals at it. Seriously. Aww. Uh, very kind of you. Great very man. Nice. Very, very nice of you to say so. So again, let's throw it back to you because this is all about you. And I can't say how much of an honor really it has been. Appreciate and we that. were looking so much forward to this interview. We just wanted to make sure that we did the best job that we can because oh we believe in you, Dutch, and we believe in we're your books. You. And we want to we want to back you. We want to be that loyal family member of yours that's there to support you and uh, be with you all along the way. And if there's anything we do, we just want to do just that. So. Know. What's that? And just let us know if there's anything we can do. I mean, that's you know, what we're here for. The yeah. best we can do is that we can help you. So I would love to help that just the way we are. So, so wrap it up for us, Dutch. Wow. I don't know. What to, I don't know how to follow that up. That was impressive. I mean, I, I can't, I can't add or I can't add anything to what you covered. You covered every single aspect. You covered the book itself, my background, the philosophy of motorcycling, the philosophy of motorcycle clubs, the history. I don't, I, there's nothing left to, you, yeah, you, you put a period and exclamation point at the end. You did it. Well, that's great. Well, we could probably keep going on and on because the oh, book absolutely. is quite deep. Yes. And there's a lot of things that we didn't cover and we could have a good time here. Uh, but we do need to cut things short because sure. people's times are limited. Uh, but so we want to thank everybody for listening today. We want to thank you, Dutch, so very much. Absolutely. And we want to thank you continue to wish you great success on your book. And again, um, go ahead and let everybody know your website again, Dutch. It's uh, Dutch Van Alsten at or Dutch Van Alsten.com. And that's Demon Rising, the story of the Wayward Scout. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll be able to find that. Can you get them on Amazon yet, Dutch? It is on Amazon now. Finally, it took a while to get there, but it is on Amazon as well. All, All right. right. Very Wonderful. good. So there you have it. We want to encourage everybody to go out and pick up Dutch's book. And uh, Dutch, they can also follow you on Facebook. You have a Facebook page as well? I do. It's a Life Behind Bars book series. There you All go. Right. Life Behind, Behind Bars, Bars book series. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Dutch, thank you so much. I'm Chuck. And Deb. And I hope everybody have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you very much as well. See you soon. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and visit our website at bikerliferadio.com. Thank you so much for listening today. We truly appreciate it. You've been listening to The Chuck and Deb Show, heard each Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. right here on 1490 AM WWPR. We thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us next week. <laughs>